0: that running a veterinary business can sometimes feel like you're fighting your way through a jungle of financial insecurity hr nightmares and overall business confusion our goal is to give you the ideas and tools you need to not just survive in this jungle but to thrive in the veterinary industry by combining over 50 years of knowledge and experience with differing opinions and a little humor we will help you get the information you need to make the best decisions for you and your veterinary business Welcome to the Veterinary Survival Show with veterinary CPA and certified financial planner Mark McGon and certified veterinary practice manager and practice owner, Jenny George. Welcome to the Veterinary Survival Show podcast. I'm Jenny George, practice manager to the best veterinary clinic in the world. And I am here with Mark McGon, CPA to the veterinary stars. And today we're talking about something that I avoid exit strategies, which I hate the term of, which is why we called this episode the master escape plan. So as a practice owner, I purposefully avoid all conference talks on exit strategies. And I know that isn't smart, and I know I should be going to hear more, but I don't want to think about it. I am in my late 40s, and I plan on working for another 20 years, so, why do I need to worry about it now? So, we're going to talk to the expert on this. Mark, you're the expert. When do we need to start thinking about it? What do we need to think about? How do you get your ducks in a row? What are your options? And I know that this might not be a talk for everybody, but if you are a practice owner or a practice manager, because I do think that practice managers have a lot to do with this, I've heard from practice managers who have been in practices that have had a change in ownership and they're expected to do all of these things and keep their mouth shut at the same time, come up with all these reports and help with the information. And it's a lot. So I just think that this is something that is worth delving into and talking about, even though maybe some of us don't want to talk about it. Mark, why do you think people don't want to talk about it?
1: It's kind of like estate planning. Nobody wants to have a will drafted because it means, uh oh, I'm going to die. Well, we are. Same thing. Eventually, you're going to sell or transition or exit or whatever term you want to use. It can't be scary because it's going to happen whether you like it or not. We have a dentist client right now who has stage four cancer. His practice has vaporized because he hasn't been there. He was in the hospital for months associate left, his hygienist left, patients have slowly drifted away, and it really has little or no value left. At the first sign of this, he could have had a plan already in place, and that's kind of what we're talking about. Get something in place as a continuity plan, just so that your value that you've created over five years, 20 years, 30 years doesn't vaporize. So. When
0: do you start thinking about this? Is there a magic date?
1: Yes. The first day you own. People laugh, but really, you're supposed to be creating the systems and the value and the brand and all those other intangible things, and tangible that drive a practice to be something that somebody wants to acquire someday or own or have gifted to them because it's going to happen. So why not start on day one? And everybody says, when you're five years out from selling, you should be thinking, well, you've coasted for 20 years and now five years before you're going to sell, you're going to pretty up your practice. A lot of people do that. They'll say, I'm selling in five years. And they'll talk to practice valuation people or brokers and say, what do I do to make my practice saleable? And everybody will say, fix up your facility and make it look good and then start doing things well. Well, Shouldn't you have been doing that from day one?
0: We did a big expansion on our practice. I don't know. I want to say like 12 years ago. And I'm starting to look around and I'm starting to see like paint chipping off. And I'm like, oh, we really should repaint it. And it's kind of like that, right? Like if you're trying to all of a sudden fix all of your problems at the end, isn't it easier to work on them throughout? But it's the same thing. Why do we do preventative medicine? We do preventative medicine to make it easier throughout this pet's life. We do it to avoid serious issues. We do wellness profiles on healthy animals so that we can catch when something starts to change. And why do we do that? So that all of a sudden we're not seeing an animal that's so far in kidney failure that we can't do anything about it. If we're keeping up with it as the animal grows then maybe we can do more preventative measures and keep the animal healthier for longer. So trying to throw a Band-Aid on or right start to do things well at the end, which I agree, that's hopefully not the way that anybody's doing it. But it's something to think about, and it's easier to do when you do it consistently from the get-go as opposed to, oh crap, now what?
1: We look at people with inventory issues. Somebody will say on December 22nd, oh, my God, my inventory is all messed up. I'm like, is your just your inventory messed up or is everything messed up?
0: <laughs> it might be indicative of a bigger problem. When we talked to the inventory specialist in an earlier episode, and she said certain things need to have quarterly reviews, certain things you need to check on monthly, certain things you can kind of do every year. There are steps that need to be taken throughout the year so that, right, it's not a week before the first of the year and you're going, oh my God, why is my inventory so messed up? Where did all of these pills go? Why is my inventory hundreds of thousands of dollars more than it has been in the past? Like these are all things that if you worked on them throughout the year, they wouldn't be an issue.
1: Yeah. So people say get a valuation done five years before you're going to sell or every year. And somebody has a vested interest in generating a valuation because they're getting a income from generating valuations for clients. But what's the valuation tell you? The valuation kind of is a starting point that could say what the potential value is. Now, sellers always in their own mind before they get an actual piece of paper that says what the value is or proposed valuation, they always overstate what the value is in their mind. And buyers want to make an offer for less than that. So you're going to kind of have to have a meeting of the minds. We have a client buying a practice now where the owner has been underpaying his staff for years and lives in the facility. There's an attached barn that they want to charge rent for the whole property, even though they're going to live in the house attached to the practice. It's just unreasonable expectations on the part of the seller. And the buyer wants to be fair but doesn't want to pay for value that they're not going to get. And they're going to have to raise the wages to keep the employees because somebody automatically will do that. We had a, a dental practice that the hygienists found out there was going to be a sale. And they said, if we don't make $75 an hour and we get a signing bonus for staying, we're walking on the day this practice is sold. Now, that's not a healthy relationship. But they were being paid market rates, but they saw this as their opportunity to win because they thought the seller was winning. So, there's so many things that are unspoken between parties, buyers and sellers, that kind of need to be hashed out. And they should be hashed out in your first day of ownership. So, like I said, going back to that first day, are you paying your people fairly? You're looking at basically your financial statements and every section, every line item, looking at it and saying, can I do better? Or is this right? Or is there room for improvement? So if you look at your cost of goods sold, are you doing a good job managing your inventory, purchasing, looking at new vendors, looking at new equipment? Somebody has to be managing that. Like you say, somebody needs to be taking control of your inventory. And if there's a tool out there like Inventory Ally or other tools like that, put them in place now. Don't wait till you're going to sell to get things ready and get good numbers. Are you looking at your employee costs? Are you offering the right benefits? Are you offering Too much in benefits. I mean, we have some people that will just start throwing money at the problem, whether it solves the employee problem or not. Typically doesn't. Uh, We did have a practice that found out that they were significantly underpaying their employees in their county by $2.50 an hour per employee. And they always had employees leaving. So they said across the board, $2.50 an hour raise for everybody. That put them leveled. But they have a compensation plan in place that they developed with our help and their own internal team, thinking about how they could compensate their employees. They have a bonus plan in place, kind of like what we've presented on before.
0: Google the MIT living wage calculator, and this is a great place to start what you should be paying people in your county. What Mark was talking about, making sure that you're paying a correct wage with the way that the economy has been changing pre-COVID, but really since COVID, now we've talked about this before. Dunkin' Donuts is hiring for $15 to $17 an hour. You're not going to get bit working for Dunkin' Donuts. So what is the livable wage in your area? How can you pay your team so that they don't leave and that you can be sure that when you do go through this valuation process, that your team, one, will want to stay or the buyer will want to keep them, and that they're still, they're they're doing well. So the MIT Livable Wage Calculator is a great place to start. That is not that you look at it and say, this is what we're going to pay everybody. This is where the minimum amount that your kennel help with no experience should be making, and then you go up from there. That's my opinion on it.
1: It's a guideline.
0: We're not big on black and white here. Yes, that's a guideline. The other thing that we should kind of plug again is profit solver. You have talked about this, not doing the willy-nilly method, because we're talking about, right, making sure that you have your processes in place. And so many times people are like, how do I charge properly for this? We talked about the F word, the fees. We talked about that in the last one. How do you charge properly? If you are sure that you are doing, your charging your fee schedule, your pricing properly, not a willy-nilly method. It's who's doing what, how do we charge appropriately so that you can have this profit. Mark, you said it before. Somebody went through this process and said, oh my gosh, we're making so much more money and profit. Well, if you start doing that earlier on, that profit stays for years. I mean, you still have to increase as prices go up and things like that. But the earlier you do that, the better that is for your end valuation. If you wait and make sure you're charging properly five years before you sell, then you're missing out.
1: You could have had value created or cash created and value created across the course of your ownership career instead of the last five years when you decide to fix everything.
0: Right. So those two things you should be doing, I think, early, very early, and continue to monitor and look at how you're paying your team and what you're pricing. Because, right, we can't pay our team well if we're not getting paid. I just was talking about this with my head receptionist that we did a splenectomy over Christmas break. My husband did the surgery and he did it so fast. Like if we're charging by minute, well, they would have only charged 900 bucks. Well, that means that he has a certain level of skill, so we need to charge appropriately. So you really need to look at how are you charging your client? Because if you're not making a profit, You can't pay your team properly. So all of these things kind of gel in together to head towards the end valuation. Who does evaluation? When should you do evaluation instead of doing it five years before? I know you and I, we did evaluation. You were like, okay, you're a no-low practice. (laughs) Get Simon out of helping with the prices. (laughs) We were in trouble. But it was because Mark was able to look at our numbers and do evaluation. So who does that and when should you do that?
1: So selfishly, I'm on the Vet Partners Valuation Council, and it's a group of about 25, maybe 30 people that are interested in veterinary valuations and are kind of the barometer of the industry on valuations. There are other people that do valuations. There's brokers, CPAs, financial planners. People, let's say they do valuations, but a valuation is kind of a nebulous thing. Some people put some numbers on a spreadsheet and multiply it by five and, hey, there's your valuation. You can do that, but there should be some analysis of risk and the market and knowledge of the industry. Just because you own a veterinary practice and you know what a p and is doesn't mean that you can create a valuation. You could have off the napkin number, and I've seen this done. But can somebody rely on it? Evaluation should be done probably as a benchmark when you're thinking of selling. Some people say, I've been in business three years. I want to know what my value is. Go ahead. Do it. It doesn't hurt. It may help with leading indicators of what you could improve on. It can be a tool to promote to your employees. This is where we are and this is where we want to go to were valued at $600,000. I thought it was going to be a, a million. How do we get it to a million? So it should be a positive indicator for how you can promote your team and your hospital. Should you get it done every year? Probably not. It's a little overkill. If you wanted to do a rough calculation, really it's your profit. Is that what evaluation valuation is? Is this really looking at what your profit is? There's a lot more moving parts an evaluation, but what does someone want to buy? A landscaping company, a painting contractor, a, a company that moves dirt from one location to another, what do they want to buy? A company that makes money. Why would you go out, buy a company, have debt, have all the responsibility and not be rewarded for it unless you're a glutton for punishment?
0: I think of the house flippers. What if you buy one of those houses and you have to trash it? That's what I think of when you talk about right being a glutton for punishment. do people do that with veterinary clinics So, like if you see a no low practice like you're talking about your poor dentist with cancer, would somebody come in buy that super cheap and then build it up and then turn around and sell it? Is that a model for buyers? Is that something that happens in the veterinary industry?
1: Well, we see it in a lot of medical fields where people will buy a downtrodden practice, and we call it a cigar butt practice. Somebody in my investment club years ago was the CFO of a publicly held company. And when they were acquiring companies for their portfolio of businesses, they would look for cigar butt companies that they could invest in, pay pennies on the dollar for, and turn them around because that's what they did well. So they would look for those companies. Similarly, and The medical field. I mean, there's lots of dental practices, veterinary practices, podiatry practices, chiropractic practices, just change the name to protect the innocent. You can buy these practices that haven't been taken care of, do a lot of hard work, and turn them around. We have examples in our client base where people bought a practice for $500,000, invested their heart and soul in it, and it's worth two, three, four, or five million dollars now. That doesn't happen every day, but it's available. Likewise, somebody can take their own practice that's worth $500,000 or even a NOLO practice and turn it around and have it be worth a million dollars with some hard work.
0: So that's what evaluation can get you that information. It can look at Maybe here are some areas that you need improvement on. I mean, if you do evaluation, are you looking at, say, inventory, and maybe you can see in advance, hey, there seems to be something off here. Here are some tools to fix it.
1: You can do that with evaluation. You can do that by hiring a consultant. You can consult with your CPA. You can look at the numbers yourself and say, that just doesn't seem right. How do I have $200,000 of inventory?
0: (laughs) I do think that there is something to be said for getting help. So I hate inventory. I despise it. When I took my CVPM exam, I think my lowest, okay, well, I didn't do great in accounting. Sorry, Mark. But I did better than I would have. But that was definitely not my strong suit. And management, like inventory type management, it's just not my love. So why wouldn't I ask for some help? I think that there are a lot of veterinary owners and practice managers out there that say, well, I should be able to figure this out. So I'm going to. And it may be worth it to talk to your CPA, to have another set of eyes, a consultant, however you want to go about it, to look at it and say, what do you see? So to be fair, I never knew what my inventory should be. And it is very difficult to find for a mixed animal practice. We have a brick and mortar practice. We have vehicles that go out. It is extremely hard to find benchmarks. We've talked about benchmarks before. We know that AHA has benchmarks, AVMA has benchmarks, VHMA have benchmarks. They all have benchmarks, but sometimes you don't fit into that box. So it is helpful, I think, to get help to look at these things. I have Mark. We've been working together now for longer than Mark would like to admit. It's one of those things that I can go to him and say, hey, is this right? Or he can look at my inventory sheet and go, dang, what are you doing? Because I might not know any different. So I do think, yes, you can look at these numbers yourself. I mean, we've talked about that with the profit solver too. I can't, I just figure these numbers out myself. You can, but there is that educational piece that you might not even realize that you need help with because you don't know any different. And so I do think that it is beneficial, maybe we don't call it evaluation, but it is beneficial to have yearly meetings maybe when you're starting more often than that because you don't even know where to start. I didn't know where to start when we started our business. I had no idea. That's when I had my mom pretend to be a little old lady with a new puppy calling around to get prices because I didn't know any other way of doing it. So there are people out there to help. So if you have a valuation done, say, I would think like if you've been open for five years, it would be worth it to have a valuation to see where you're at because we were no low practice 12 years ago. And I didn't even understand. I knew in my heart that we were having some issues as I'm trying to figure out how much is in my savings, my personal savings account. Can we make payroll? Am I going to have to get into that? So I knew we were in trouble. But looking at that and having Mark sit down and talk about it really helped us change it and do things differently. And we've gotten just better and better and better as we've gone. If you have evaluation done, you said don't do it every year. Or maybe if say okay, you have a five hundred thousand dollar practice, and you say, well, my goal is to get it to this point. Do you have to go through a whole another valuation to get that information, or can you just look at your P and L so you're not doing it too often?
1: You can look at your P and L and try and come up with your own adjusted earnings, trying to normalize what your earnings would be if someone else was running the business, and really you're looking at from an investment value. So if anybody has gone through a potential corporate sale, they'll come back with the adjusted earnings and adjustments that they would propose to come to adjusted earnings to get to a valuation number. You could do that. It may be out of your wheelhouse. Your CPA should probably be able to help you do that. It's not like a five-second project that they can give you a quick answer. We have people say, well, looking at the numbers, what do you think my value is? If it was that easy, everybody could do it. Right.
0: So the whole idea of evaluation is that it tells you how healthy your practice is, correct? Like maybe we should explain what a no-low practice is.
1: A no-low practice is when you're adjusting your earnings to normalize it, to pay your doctors at least 21%, including yourself for your own production, adjusting your rent to what fair market rent would be for your building or facility if you own it. People that own their building and their practice usually play some sort of games, either underpay, overpay, because they consider one entity, one combined entity. And for tax purposes, we treat them like that. But to an outside third party, they want to pay a fair price for your building. So that would be adjusted. You could come up with that in a no-low practice study. There's a spreadsheet out there on the Vet Partners website that you can do your own quick and dirty, no low practice, it's better to have your CPA do it. Because every time I send it out to clients, they're like, hey, could you just do this? I don't understand it. I would 100% be one of those people. But it starts the conversation. I think it was developed years ago, and I joined Vet Partners in 2003, which is a group of like-minded consultants, CPAs, attorneys, marketing people, industry people. I think the the vet partner's NOLO study worksheet was designed to scare people into action, not inaction. So if you have a NOLO practice, I've seen practices where the owner had to pump in their own funds each year to pay bills and pay their debt, which is awful. It's supposed to go the other way around.
0: We were doing that for a little bit. And that's when we decided that Simon needed to be removed from the pricing strategy because he's like... I don't want to go up on prices. I'm glad you don't want to, but costs are going up. And we want to pay our team and we built this huge facility and we have to pay for it and he wants to give everything away for free and that's not a it's not a feasible
1: option. Right, so that call to action should mean that maybe you've exceeded your capabilities of managing or leading and maybe you need some help or assistance or additional knowledge or Have a resource that can help you do all those things. Know when your inventory is out of balance. Know when your employees need more money. Know how to negotiate a lease because you're not good at it and you never will be. But if you can find a person or company like Carr to help you do that, all of that stuff leads to producing value.
0: A lot of the reason that veterinary professionals, and I think anybody wants to do it on their own is to save money, right? Like, I should be able to do this. I don't want to pay for this. I do my own payroll because why would I pay somebody else to do it when I can do it? Just because you can do it does not mean that you're good at it. And in the end, yes, you might be paying for it, but how much are you producing because you're not doing payroll? Like, it makes you money in the long run.
1: We have clients all the time that want to do everything on their own, everything. And then when they screw it up, who do they call? (laughs) (laughs) We have a client that just emailed me today that we don't handle their bookkeeping. We don't handle their payroll. They just found out from the IRS that they didn't pay payroll taxes. I'm sure they must have gotten notices before this, but they just had to pay $6,000 to the IRS because they failed to pay some taxes back in 2019, 20, and 21.
0: Right. These are the things that end up, I think, in the long run costing you. We've talked about it before. I don't know how many times we can say delegate, 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 right? Like, do what you're good at. It's not that you can't get better and it's not that you shouldn't understand. I did take accounting classes, not just so I could pass my CVPM, but also because here I am running a business and I don't understand these things and I should understand these things. Does that mean that I'm going to do my own taxes? No, it does not. Just because I kind of understand a little bit better how it all works, I know I would screw stuff up. That's why I have Mark there are benefits. I have someone, yes, I might call in my hours to do my payroll, or I might pay somebody to get on and do it for me, but it's going to cost me some money. But you know what? I don't want to screw up and not pay my payroll taxes. I don't want to screw up and miss my quarterly taxes or miss my tax rate adjustment and not understand what to do with that. All of these things, it can be very worth it to delegate. And in the end, Your valuation is going to be better because, and correct me if I'm wrong, but if you sell, they're going to look at that and say, well, what if we did pay someone to do payroll? Or say you're going to do corporate. They're not going to have their practice manager doing payroll. They're going to have their HR company doing payroll. So that would have to be adjusted as well. Same with inventory. Same with all of these things that maybe you've been doing yourself. They're going to come back and say, well, I'm not going to do all that. So here's the adjusted value.
1: I mean, we have doctors all the time that their spouse is unpaid and is their practice manager. Somehow that's going to be adjusted if somebody's looking at, well, who's doing your practice management? Normally that we're looking on a on valuation analysis to see if there's family members that are just getting paychecks for not doing any work, where usually it's college-age children that get a paycheck and don't show up. In this case, there's work being done on behalf of the practice, and there's no dollars going out to compensate that individual.
0: Right. And that's why, from the get-go, I have taken a paycheck. Simon has taken a paycheck. So I guess, to a certain extent, I had been thinking about this, just not realizing it, And I told Simon, I'm like, what happens if I die? Like, you're going to have to pay somebody to do this. So we better be making sure that that's taken care of all along. So there's not this huge change in payroll when, oh my gosh, all of a sudden I have to pay somebody while I'm also dealing with my spouse having just passed. It does go to the estate planning, what you were talking about. Like, this is why nobody wants to talk about it because I don't want to think about that stuff. Well, guess what? It's life. And sometimes it happens.
1: Well, it's also to have a saleable practice, there should be creatable value that is documented. So your job needs to be documented, everything that you do. I mean, I worked at a CPA firm before I got there. There was an administrative assistant that was driving to work and got run over by a dump truck. This poor woman passed away, young lady, and they didn't really know at the CPA firm what she did but she did everything, and for a year they were underwater because she had done so much behind the scenes. They didn't know who to pay. They had contracts that were lapsing. There were clients that weren't. Con- I mean, this was before contact management. So there was just email, but nothing that she did had been documented. So you, know, you look at a franchise business. We have a Dunkin' Donuts franchise group with a hundred plus franchise locations up and down the East Coast. Everything they do is documented. What does the manager do when they get to the store? They open the door, they they turn off the... I mean, it's written down in a book and anybody can look at it to see what the next step is. So if three people get hit by the bus, somebody else could go in their shoes and look at the book. This goes back to policies
0: and procedures, job descriptions, having these things in place. Because if you don't, This is what happens, right? Like who takes care of the equipment? How do you know how often you need to clean your autoclave? How often do they come and pick up medical waste? Who knows how to package that properly? If we're going to do a splenectomy, what needs to be done? Like there should be these little bibles for every area. An angry client comes in. How do I handle it? Who talks to who? You need to have your policies and procedures in place. You need to have your job descriptions in place. And these are things to me that grow with you as your practice grows. So when we first started, it was Simon, it was me, it was our technician, Jody. We all did everything. Jody answered the phone, she set up appointments, God help us Simon every now and then set up an appointment which should have never happened. I did all that. I did technician work and ran blood work. But then as we all kind of grew and separated, we started having, here's Jenny's job as the practice manager. Here's Simon's job as the medical director. Here's Simon's job as a veterinarian. Here's Jody's job as a CVT training other people. And I was horrible about making policies and procedures. I didn't write anything down. If you have those things put in place, it is worth your time having a proper employee manual that lists out what your rules are. I have mentioned that I'm on practice managers groups on Facebook and they're on there going, what do I do now? This person showed up with funny colored hair. Well, you don't do anything if it's not in your employee manual. Because how are they supposed to know that they couldn't dye their hair bubblegum pink? If it's not in your employee manual, what are you going to say? And then what, are you going to make up a policy after the fact and tell them that they're going to lose their job because they just dyed their hair pink? Like, these are the things you need to review, look at, change, morph as you go, so that at the end... Does this play into valuation if someone wants to buy my practice and I say, hey, look, here's my training schedule, here's my employee manual, here's what we've... If I have all of that in place, that's like saying, hey, you can buy this place and you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Like That's why people buy franchises is because all of that is done for them. I don't want to do that, but now I've been working on it and it is worth the time because then, right, you buy into it. Here's all the books that go along with it. Here's all the job descriptions.
1: If you sell to a corporate group, they may already have their own systems in place that they're just plugging your employees into. So upsetting the apple cart, is that worth more value to you? Maybe. Or do you just want to sell to another associate veterinarian or an outside party?
0: Well, I think that's the thing, right? Is when you start out, I don't know who I'm going to sell to. So having those things in place, right. If you sell to a corporate and they come in and say, none of this matters to us, then okay, fine. It gives you a leg up if you sell to an associate because they know that all of these things are already in place and they have that. Because let me tell you, nobody wants to sit down and be like, okay, now we're going to come up with a training manual. Let's take all this time and here's phase one and here's phase two for your veterinary technician assistant, for your vet techs, for your CVTs, for your receptionist. Nobody wants to come up with that stuff. So to me, that would be a benefit if you're selling to an associate.
1: I mean, anything that creates a system for somebody that's next up in line to just take over with creates value. So, if somebody's doing a valuation, they're going to look at all of these factors and assess the risk of somebody buying the practice. Is the risk low because you have all your inventory systems, purchasing systems, employee compensation, employee manual, all of those things written down, documented, and followed? That somebody can just plug and play.
0: What about equipment? How does equipment play into your value?
1: Well, it's really assumed that you have the necessary equipment to keep producing revenue. We have some clients that love to buy equipment, like love. It might be casually used, but buying a $60,000 piece of equipment, you should be using it all the time, not just to have it. So the more equipment you have, it's not like a car collection. Somebody that likes car collections would probably appreciate it, but if it's not providing value and can't get you from point A to point B efficiently and cost-effectively, then don't buy it.
0: So if you have an endoscope, to say that you have an endoscope, but it has not been paying
1: for itself, then don't have it, correct? In a clinical decision-making environment? (laughs) Right now, Mark wants to say, well, it depends. I want to say it depends we're really looking at replicating revenue if it's not creating revenue what's it doing maybe a nice doorstop
0: right same as like a laser like say you want to get a laser but you're then if you're not using it if you're not offering it to every surgery if you're not using it for post surgical orthopedics if you're not using it for skin conditions if you're not using it for arthritis then why do you have it so you need to look at it my other thought on this is I know some places that have like their x-ray machines duct taped together. Is there a benefit prior to selling to getting newer equipment? Like say, okay, I'm going to sell in five years. Should I update my equipment at that time? Is that going to help with my valuation? Or do we just leave it and let them deal with it? Like I'm thinking about when you sell a house, right? And maybe the septic tank needs worked on. Sometimes you'll lower the price of the house and the new owners will deal with that. Or they won't buy it until you fix the septic tank. Is that the same thing with, say, like equipment or things like that?
1: Same thing in a practice. So you could not replace it, not repair it, and let the buyer beware. But full knowledge, they may not want to buy the practice. We had a practice that was an old film x-ray. There were chemicals that had leaked into the ground. And it was in a highly desirable practice area. So. The buyer basically said, you know what, we'll deal with it. We just want this practice no matter what. Most people aren't going to make that decision that way. Looking back 10 years, it was the right decision for them. For most people, maybe not. And a corporate group may say, look, if they can't take care of their x-ray machine, what else are they hiding? So you want to fix those. I mean, make believe this is your start of your five years before selling. Get all that stuff taken care of.
0: Now, what if, so like I said at the beginning, I plan on for at least another 20 years, if Simon has his way, it'll be 40. Are these things that you should look at on a regular basis? Again, so that you're not slapping a Band-Aid on five years before you decide to sell, but maybe keeping up with it.
1: What are you slapping a Band-Aid on?
0: Well, like my broken X-ray machine that's held together with duct tape or whatever.
1: Do you see what I'm saying? Like
0: To me, it's better to take an inventory of all of your stuff. On a regular basis. Maybe have an insurance company come in and look at everything on a regular basis so you know you're properly insured. Just having your ducks in a row.
1: Well, if you're looking at every line item on your P&L, insurance cost is one of them. If you're having a risk management audit periodically to make sure you're not underinsured or even overinsured, that's one thing. But there are things that employees bring up to management or practice managers bring up to management. Or even clients bring up to management, hey, that step, I almost fell through it because it's so rotted. Or the x-ray machine, this light keeps blinking. What is it for? I mean, you have indicators all the time of what potentially is wrong or is wrong. Start dealing with it now because somebody else doesn't want to deal with it later.
0: Okay, I'm going to ask you my last big question about exit strategies or escape plans. How do you know who to sell to? Like when it comes time to sell, what are your options? How do you make that decision? You said it's very nebulous. Like this is the stuff that scares me. I don't want to think about selling. Originally, we started this practice when our 17-year-old, almost 17-year-old was born. She was going to become a vet and take it over. Well, let me tell you, she's not going to become a vet. There went our exit strategy. (laughs) How do you manage this? How do you go through this maze of the end of your practice ownership?
1: I mean, it's kind of like a pebble in a pond. You're going to kind of look at the the rings closest to you. So associates, practice managers, and we have more and more practice managers partnering with veterinarians to buy practices, either the current practice they're in or new practices. You can do that because you know the people, you know their work ethic, you know their thirst for knowledge, client service, etc. My partner, Alan, who I partnered with in 2009, had met a whole bunch of people and got a good feeling with me. And his evaluation tool for if we should work together going forward was, could I deal with his three most demanding or difficult clients? Hopefully the technical ability, there's a threshold that you have to exceed. So your technical skill is assumed that it's there whether in medicine, law, accounting, whatever it is. Here, it was, here's the problems I experience all the time. Let's see how they handle them. Some people do that with working interviews, skills assessments, as they call them. In my case, I was able to deal with these three people, and one of them retired, and two are still clients. And over a few years, they actually stopped talking to Alan and started working exclusively with me. So
0: so Alan's grand plan worked. I don't like these people. Let's see if Mark can take them.
1: But Alan had a grand plan because the person that he bought from sold and like a month later died on the golf course in his early 60s, I think. And he was about that age when he was selling to me. And it kind of brought whether a flashback or hey, I don't want to be that guy. So let's get things planned for now. Is that a possibility? Yes. We've had people, clients, go into cardiac arrest on a walk with their wife and their dog. And they were in the middle of a sale that fell through and they had to sell and it didn't turn out great. And you don't want to have regrets that I wish I did, I could have done. Plan for it now, and it most likely won't happen. But like estate planning, get prepared because it could potentially happen. So all the value you've created in your practice and profit that hopefully you've generated and kept and spent and enjoyed, you're going to see the full evolution to someone else and be happy for them. That's our goal when somebody is buying a practice that the seller feels that they won and the buyer feels that they won. What that winning is, is it price? Is it, oh my God, I got the deal of a lifetime. It's the place I always wanted to work. I never thought I could buy a place like this. And oh my God, I sold it. I don't have to worry. I can still work here and enjoy my clients. We have people that Alan stayed 13 years after the sale and thoroughly enjoyed his time working because it kept him connected to people that he had worked with for 30 plus years. But he didn't have to worry about being the boss. He didn't have to worry. He actually it's yours. (laughs) There you go. I'll provide assistance if you want and insider knowledge, but it's yours.
0: On the other hand, I have seen that go bad where I worked at a practice where they sold to an associate. She kept the previous owner on and there was a battle. I mean, it was ugly because he wanted to keep doing things his way. That's how he had done it since 1977 when he started his practice. And she, her management style was very different. And when she wasn't there, he was like, well, I don't care what she says. This is how we're going to do it. And when she was there, there was a lot of like, some of the team members were on the current owner's team. Some of the team members were on the previous owner's team. And it got really ugly. So I think if you choose to go that route and sell to an associate and stay on, there has to be very clear boundaries set up and a, hey, if this happens, I'm going to leave or however, but I think if you sell to an associate, and you stay on, there have to be very, very clear boundaries set up beforehand. And I think that needs to be part of the sale part of your escape plan is, yes, maybe you've done what Alan did with Mark. And then they knew that they could work together. And I tend to hire for personality, right? Like you can teach technical skills, but I need to make sure that you can work within this team. But you need to have a very, very clear... And this, I think, goes to if you sell to team members. What is the word for it when you disperse it to your team members when you sell? And they're all like shareholders.
1: You're an ESOP, can do employee-owned.
0: Yes. Right. Those are what I'm talking about. But you better have real clear plans in place that go further
1: than just, here's the cost of the practice. I mean, we've had practice sales to associates that went swimmingly. We've had others where... The seller would call me and say, oh my God, I can't believe what they've turned into. They're doing treatments that aren't warranted. They're, as they say, money hungry. Now that they have to pay X amount of dollars to the bank for their acquisition debt that they've turned into a different person. Hopefully, your internal barometer has already told you way before that the sales happened that they're the right person, that you have a great gut feeling. There's no magic test, but you really have to trust your instincts. If you have any doubts.
0: I will say that there was a clinic in our area who sold to a larger corporation and the owner has to stay on for so many years after the acquisition. And she was not happy after two years. She was not happy with where it went and they raised the money and bought it back from the corporation. And she went back to being the owner. And I was like, whoa, I hadn't heard of that before. But all the things that that corporation promised, they were not coming through on, which I don't understand. If you sell to a large corporation and they say, your culture is going to stay the same, your X, Y, and Z, it's all going to stay the same, and then it doesn't, how is that not a breach of contract? Or is, does that not matter? Is that not actually like, we promised this, but we're just kidding. If a corporation says that and they come in and they buy it and then they break their promises, what are your repercussions?
1: If it wasn't contractual, how do you delineate what a culture change is? Can you document that? We're going to be more friendly.
0: But I did find it interesting that she did that, that this practice owner did that. And I actually called them up and I was like, hey, well done. Or I talked to them and I was like, I heard what you guys did. And I thought that was pretty, pretty ballsy, actually. I'm like, you said that I'm not happy with the way it went. But I do think that there's something to be said that if you sell it your hands are out of it now. Like you better feel good about the sale, whether you're just saying, okay, I want to sell so that I get a huge payout. And I know in two to four years when my contract is up, I'm going to Belize, Costa Rica. That's my new goal. But if that's your goal, then you don't get to be upset basically about where the clinic goes after you sell it because that was your choice. You sold to those people.
1: Nothing is going to be the same. It could be small differences. It could be major differences, but you may have to just live with it. And some people say, you know what, it could have been a lot worse. And I've had five or six people say that this past year on sales, that it could have been worse. I'm happy where it is. The staff's pretty happy. There's a lot of stability that is inserted here because it's a much bigger corporation that's running it. They have their own systems in place. We don't agree with some of the changes, but they haven't changed everything. That's still the same software, same employees, same clients.
0: Overall the patient care is good.
1: Overall the client care is good. Some of the sellers are the medical directors of that location.
0: So they stay on so they can oversee the patient care.
1: They're in charge of patient care. They get twenty, twenty-five thousand extra dollars. We have one person got thirty-five thousand dollars for being the medical director. So they still have some level of control, but they're not paying the bills generating payroll answering HR questions,
0: doing the stuff that they didn't want to do in the first place that they should have delegated to a practice manager, just throwing that out there.
1: But there's still boots on the ground with the same people. People are going to voice their concerns to them since seemingly they must have trusted them over the years of ownership when they owned.
0: So part of your escape plan also needs to be thinking about what happens after and where are you going to go? What are you going to do? And have that in writing because I do think that there needs to be very, very clear expectations on the buyer and the seller's sides. And there needs to be very clear boundaries and written out so that there's a plan because I have seen it go horribly wrong. Actually, in a couple of different areas, I had another one that he sold his practice. First, he sold the large animal portion, then the large animal guy couldn't make payments back. So he took back his horse clients, but he didn't want to because his body had been beat up enough Then he sold his small animal practice. He wasn't happy with that. He literally opened up his building two doors down in a strip mall. But because he just did holistic medicine, and she was doing small animal medicine, and I'm like, whoa, that just feels like it was just a bad idea. It's just interesting how things can go. So I think you have to be really clear about what your expectations are. What happens if you go to sell? Like, can you just say, I am not going to take lower than X amount? I mean, I'm sure you can
1: say that, but... You can do whatever you want. Will somebody agree to it? It's a willing buyer and a willing seller. If one of the parties isn't willing, then it won't happen. Got it. So can I say it now? Yes. Sell, Winthorpe. Sell.
0: Now you have to explain it to all the people who don't know.
1: (laughs) That's Trading Places with Eddie Murphy from, I think,
0: 1983.
1: And Dan Aykroyd. And Dan Aykroyd. They were fooled into buying frozen concentrated orange juice and then on wrong information and then they lost their shirts. You'd never want to buy on wrong information and be left holding the bag and have somebody else win and you not win. Everybody should win. Full disclosure. Right.
0: Mark wanted to name this podcast, "Selwynthorpe Winthorpe Sel and I there are going to be people who have never seen that movie and not understand.
1: So what are the talking points that you could take home? Talk about valuations with your CPA, practice management consultant. Email me. I'll get you some references from our vet partners group for people that have done valuations for our clients. Look at your P&L with your CPA. Where are items that we could look at? And our dental clients are more focused on this. I'll have meetings where we go line by line. Here's what I'm buying. What should I do? Should I change my vendor? Should I... Join a buying group, which we always say go to TVC. Should I have somebody help negotiate my next lease? Should I buy my building? Should I buy a building? All these questions can change your value and your trajectory of value. Or you can do the status quo if you like that, but have a plan in place of what you want to do in case the bus comes, as it has to some of our clients. And if it never comes, great, but at least you have a plan in place. And hopefully that plan is creating value. You need to think about incremental value and how you can get more of it, whether it's profit, whether it's new services, whether it's changing your purchasing patterns. You need to constantly evolve because if you're not evolving, you're just standing still and you don't want to end up standing still and be that cigar butt practice that everybody loves to buy because they're going to take it and create a lot more value than you ever did.
0: I think the key point is start now. Wherever you are in your journey, if you are a practice manager, say you're listening to this and you say, well, I don't own it. I have no real power. These are things that you need to get your practice owner thinking about. These are things that need to be thought about and you say, okay, I'm here to help you. But start now because the earlier you make these changes, the better it is in the long run and the less you're going to have to scramble to work on in the last five years prior to you selling. So start now earlier is better. Sell, Winthorpe, sell. But no, I think those are good. And I think too, back to our always message, delegate, delegate, delegate. Don't think you need to do all this on your own because it's a lot. What you talked about was a lot. It's a lot to think about and it's a lot to do. And I think it can be very overwhelming. So you don't have to do this on your own.
1: And you have to do it bite-sized pieces. Little bits, little bits.
0: So we thank you very much for listening. You can follow us on Instagram, on Facebook at The Veterinary Survival Show, and you can always Google Mark McGon, CPA to the vet stars, Jenny George, Deerfield Veterinary Clinic in Deerfield, New Hampshire. So you can find us all sorts of ways, but we would love to hear from you. So we hope that you listen in next time, and we thank you very much. Please like and subscribe.
1: Happy New Year.